So chapter 6, verse 1. Now we are going to come to that great evil. When mankind began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves from any that they chose. So Yahweh said, My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely, since they are mortal, and they will remain for 120 more years. Now the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also after this, when the sons of God were having sexual relations with the daughters of mankind who gave birth to their children. They were mighty heroes of old, the famous men. But Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humankind had become so great on earth that every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. And Yahweh regretted that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was highly offended. So Yahweh said, I will wipe out humankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground and the birds of the air. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of Yahweh. What is the sin that is being committed? We often think that it's the fact that everybody's thinking only evil all the time, which leads to the flood. And that is true. But there's another sin. Judgment always comes after sin. Judgment does not come before sin. That's called unjust. Okay? So the first mention of judgment is verse 3. My spirit will not contend with mankind any longer. They have 120 more years. Now, a lot of people think that that means that they're not going to live past 120 years, that mankind is like limited to 120 years and they can't live anywhere past that. And that might be true, but at the same time, after the flood, people are living past 120 years. Well, some people said, yeah, well, God's not instantaneous on that. He just kind of lets it gradually decline over time. Yeah, but I also have a hard time with God looking at the woman in China who's in 119 and then when she turns 120, he's like, I can't put up with her anymore. <laughs> Kills her. Okay, like, but what you do get is, my spirit will not contend with them. Who is he directly angry with? That generation. Who will not live 120, past 120 years? That generation. It doesn't mean that nobody will live past 120. Methuselah is. It means that they have 120 more years. Well, to what? Well, if you look at the age that Noah is when God first speaks to him and the age that Noah is when the flood comes, it just happens to be 120 years later. The idea is humanity has 120 more years before I wipe them off the face of the earth. That's the judgment. Then you learn later that the way he's going to do that is the flood. Now you're like, okay, wait a minute. They're thinking only evil all the time, and God's going to give them 120 more years? It's like way more patience than I have with my kids. Why? Because God is a God of love and grace. He's a God who wants to redeem them. Why does he want to give them 120 years? To repent. To the repent. Well, who's going to lead them in repentance? Noah. But the fact that nobody repents shows you not, it shows you two things, how evil they really are, and 120 years and nobody repents, and two, how just God is to wipe them out. So a lot of times we look at this and think, how could God? Well, they're already evil all of the time, 
And then he gives them 120 years, and they know what's going to happen. And then he gives them a prophet to witness to them and lead them. And after 120 years, they still reject that. He is definitely just. He had every right to wipe them out right off that bat. Because he brought them into the land, he can take them from the land. But because of the love of God, he gave them 120 more years. Which means he is just on multiple levels. And that's the point he's making here. So then the question is, if judgment comes after sin, then what's the sin? The sons of... Well, the only thing that happens before that is verse 1 and 2. And the only thing that is mentioned is the sons of God are sleeping with the daughters of men. You're like, well, what's that? I mean, don't men and women sleep together all the time and God's not wiping out the earth? Yeah, except no. Now, this has led to many, 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 many theories. Well, actually, only three. Three that have been have spanned the test of time. Many, many, many theories, but a lot of them get shut down like within years. But these ones have lasted for a long time. This is where I'm going to go really crazy on you. Who are the sons of God? They are angels. Now, I cannot say that absolutely positively without a shadow of a doubt, but pretty much every scholar says they're angels. And here's why. One, the sons of God always means angels in the Bible. Give you an example. Everybody turn to Job chapter 1. Job 1, verse 6. Now the day that came when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and thus Satan also arrived among them. Now, how many of your translations has the sons of God? How many of your translations have angels? All right, half and half about. How many of you who have sons of gods has a footnote next to it? Or no, who have angels has a footnote next to it. What does the footnote say? In the Hebrew, the sons of God. Now, why did your translator just choose to translate it angels? Because everybody knows, scholars, that sons of gods, God always means angels. The one place that it doesn't mean it, according to a lot of people, is Genesis 6. Why? Because that's just weird. Now, I'm sorry, weird is not enough for me to say that that's not possible, because when we get to chapter 22 of Numbers, a donkey's going to talk to Balaam. So that means that that's not possible, because that's just weird. And then when we get to the Gospels, a man is going to raise himself from the dead. So that's just weird. So weird, if you've ever really read the Bible from cover to cover, rejecting something because it's weird doesn't quite cut it. There's a lot of weird things in the Bible, really weird things. Way weirder than I think what you realize because we don't like to talk about those things because they're weird. So that doesn't cut it. So here's the thing. Sons of God always refers to angels. Now you say, well, wait a minute. What about Seth? He was a son of God. Yeah, he was a son of God. Son is different than sons of God. And you're like, well, what's, that's just an S. Well, the S makes everything. It makes a big difference. Like when you said, hey, when are we going to study Revelations? And your pastor's like, it's Revelation. And that's important because it's not multiple revelations, it's one revelation. Plurality does make a huge difference, a big difference. I have a wife, not wives. That's a big difference, okay? 
So sons of God is a title referring to angels, where son of God is an adoption language that God uses of Israel. And you say, well, when you get to the Second Testament, we're called sons and daughters of God. That's because the Holy Spirit comes into play. Because sons of God communicates a supernatural divine aspect. Well, why are you now considered a son of God? Why are we sons and daughters of God now? Because we have a supernatural divine aspect in us now. Not that we are, but it dwells in us. And so the reality is, is all throughout the Bible. Now, some people throw in this like, well, there's only about five or six places in the Bible that term is really used. So that's not enough for me. Really? How many times does the Bible have to say it for it to be truth? I mean, do I need to say I have three daughters over and over and over and over again before it becomes truth? If God says it one time, then it's truth, period. So it's being used this way consistently. Now, the other thing is, this kind of warrants wiping out all of humanity. Yes? Was there a word in the Hebrew for angels or was... Yes, Meshach, just angels. So angel is a word used of just angels in a sense, but sons of God also has a title kind of sense. So just like there's multiple words for humans. Yes, there is a different word. And we'll talk about that when we get to Genesis. I'm going blank. 16, I think it is. So we'll talk about angels. Now, the other thing is this. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. Now, who those who are just in the 2 Peter class, this is kind of all review. And the Jude class. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Now, give you context. There's these false teachers that have infiltrated the church, and Peter's ripping them a new one. And one of the things that he's making the point is this that you think that you're not going to be judged because you're just special. But don't worry, you'll be judged just like these people in the past were judged. And then he gives some examples. So the first example he says is, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into, not hell, if your Bible says hell, there's a footnote that says Tartarus, just meaning the underworld of punishment, and, or the abyss. And locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with the seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world. And if he turned to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he condemned them to destruction, having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly. So notice the context. He says that there are angels who are chained up in the abyss for sins that they committed. Well, when did they commit these sins? During the time of Noah. So Peter tells you, during the time of Noah, God locked up angels in the abyss. Now you're like, wait a minute. Are angels godly? No. All angels were godly, but there was a falling away, where some people say it was a third, but we have no idea, where some of the angels fell away. And we now call them demons. In the First Testament, God never really calls them demons. He just calls them angels. Well, how do you know if they're good angels or bad angels? Well, if they do bad things, they're bad angels. If they do good things, they're good angels. <laughs> just like, how do you know if that human is a bad human or a good human? Look at their fruit. So if these people are doing something that angers God so much that he has to wipe out the earth, then they're demons. But you can still call them angels. They're just called fallen angels or unholy angels. 
So we're told that there's these angels who sin and God locked them up. And they're still locked up to this day. How do I know that? Because when we get to the book of Revelation, they're going to be released from the abyss to torment humanity. Of course, that depends on your view of Revelation, but that's a whole other thing. So now let's go to Jude. Jude verse 6. There are no chapters. And that's that teeny one or two page book, depending on how big your font is, right before Revelation. And Jude 6 says this. You also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, meaning they went somewhere they weren't supposed to, maybe mixing it up with human women, he has kept in eternal chains and utter darkness locked up for the judgment of the great day. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulge in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example." So Jude tells you that the angels were imprisoned in the abyss. He doesn't tell you what time period, though. But Jude and Peter are kind of copying each other here, for lack of a better word. But he tells you that they were thrown into the abyss, and for the same reason, Sodom and Gomorrah was punished for their sexual sins. For they went after unnatural desires, just like the angels did. Well, that word unnatural means mixing with something that is not like you. So for Sodom and Gomorrah, it was homosexuality. For angels, it would be humans. So between Jude and 2 Peter, we're told that there's a group of angels during the time of Noah who committed sexual sins, went after things that are not like themselves, and were thrown into abyss for that sin. This kind of sounds like angels. Kind of like sons of sons of God. Here's the other interesting thing. Why is it called the sons of God slept with the daughters of men? Why not the daughters of God slept with the sons of men? Why not the sons and daughters were marrying the sons of God, marrying the sons and daughters of men? There seems that it's very clear that it can only be the sons of God with only the sons, the daughters of men. Those are used as titles. Because some people have said the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth and the sons daughters of men refer to the God... Yes, to the ungodly line of Cain. Really? So only ungodly women were marrying godly men? It didn't happen the other way? I, and I, I say this in general. I don't mean to mock anybody. i just trying to make points. So, so here's the, the thing. Everything seems to point towards this. Notice, too, that some people say that this also says taking wives, which means that the human participation was mutual. It also means that the fathers agreed with it and approved of it because there's no way you're getting married without father approval. All right? And so this presents... Now, yes, this is strange and this is weird, but it might also explain that the word blameless used of um, Noah can also refer to a physical purity. The other thing that's interesting is this view is pretty much the view that everybody has held all throughout history until the medieval period. In fact, if you go to the book of Enoch, which was written during the, pre, between right before Christ and right after the First Testament, they actually talk about it. They say the angels sleeping with humans. They don't even like, and they tell the, all the stories and name all the demons, and the, which we know that may not be accurate. 
But what's interesting is this. The book of Enoch literally says that demons were sleeping with human women and they were getting married and all that kind of stuff and tells this long story. And then Jude quotes that book and that passage when he makes the point about the angels being thrown in the abyss. That doesn't mean that the book of Enoch is inspired, but it does mean that that line that he's quoting is truth. So it's very interesting that Jude is quoting from a book about angels and or sleeping with humans at the time of Noah. And he doesn't say, that's wrong. He quotes it to make his point. So that lends a lot of weight to it. So this view pretty much was dominant all throughout history until around the second century after Christ. Then Jews begin to reject this. Why? Because it's weird. At this point, we're now in the product of the Greek mythology, and the Greek mythology had all these views, and when they wanted to distance themselves from Greek mythology, so they said, well, the Greek mythology talks like this, then the Bible can't be talking like that. And they distanced themselves. And then around the third century, the Christian church began to reject this view. All in the view of, it sounds very mythological. But here's the question. Is that not the right view because it sounds mythological? Or did the mythology get born out of the correct view? Meaning, do we have mythological stories of God sleeping with humans because it really did happen at one time? Or is this just a strange view that we should reject because it does sound mythological? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? That's the question. And so I believe that all truth is God's truth, and I believe that nobody can invent anything new or different except for God. Therefore, all we can do is take truth and twist it, which means there has to be some evidence to this. What is our obsession of sleeping with gods? You're like, well, we don't have that obsession. Yeah, we do. It's called the movie Twilight where a woman falls in love with a god and has a baby from them. It's called the movie Hancock with Will Smith, where he's the son of a god sleeping with a a human woman. It's called Percy Jackson, the Olympians. I mean, this this is coming back big time. In fact, there's a new genre called dark romance. It's a whole bookshelf at Barnes & Noble, almost the width of this wall, dedicated to dark romance. And it's just stories about women having love affairs with vampires and demons and angels and becoming gods. Yes, exactly. It is the number one genre among teenage girls right now. Why are we obsessed with this? Maybe because there is some truth to it. It warrants wiping out humanity. Explains why he's called physically blameless as well as spiritually blameless. Now, let's deal with the other views, too, because I don't want to just say that they're not valid. Let's deal with the views. Yes. I mean, when, when it says sons of God and then daughters of men, is it because all the angels are male? Yes. And that's the other thing. Yes, thank you for that clarification. All angels are always portrayed as men. And we'll talk about that more when we talk about angels in a couple of weeks. But, in fact, they're so men that whenever anybody sees an angel, they immediately assume that it is a man. And this is something that's, once again, let's throw out our assumptions and our Hallmark cards, which is interesting. You know those little cherub babies that, like, with the bows and arrows and hit you in Hallmark? That's called Cupid. What's is interesting is they're called cherubim, which a fat little baby getting you to fall in love with people is very far away from the real cherubim from Ezekiel, with the multi, I mean, you're going to pee your pants when you see that thing, okay? The other thing is that um, Cupid 
And Greek mythology was a demon. And Greek mythology, Cupid was a demon who shot you with a love arrow and made you so in lust with somebody, whoever you saw first, that you ended up going to your death because you were tormented by sexual desire. And then we make it a Hallmark holiday. So, um, so the reality is you, you have to remember, even our Hallmark cards are not steeped in truth. So when it comes to angels, you have to realize that angels... Who says that they don't have physical bodies? Nowhere does the Bible say that angels are not physical. Nowhere does the Bible say that angels don't look human. In fact, every single time an angel comes, everybody thinks it's a human. They think they're talking to a man. They're always called. They're always in the masculine. They always act as men. In fact, when the two angels walk by Noah or Abraham, when we get to chapter 18, he will call them sir, master, men, invite them in. And when they eat food, it doesn't fall through their body and hit the ground. Like it actually stays inside of them. So just because they're not, they may be physical just like us, just not bound by dimensions. Was not Jesus physical with a human body, yet he was able to walk through walls? So just because they are able to pass through things and disappear does not mean that they're not physical. It just means that they're doing something we can't do, period. So we have to remember that our view of angels may not be the most accurate. So yes, they're just men. Now some people have said, before we get to the Seth view, some people have said, yes, but Jesus says in Matthew, that we will be just like angels not given in marriage in heaven. Big, big, big problem with that. First, Jesus is not giving us a theology on the essence of angels or the essence of humans in heaven. Jesus is refuting the idea that the resurrection is not possible, and he gives an example over here. If I say, this is just like my rubber ducky, I'm not making the point that, here, let me give you a theological dissertation on rubber duckies. I'm using it as an analogy. And analogies are not always one-to-one comparisons. Like, oh, God's like a three-leaf clover. No, he's not. It's an analogy. Okay, so be careful to say, let's build a theology on an analogy that's actually developing a theology on a completely different point, resurrection. The other thing, too, is he says that the angels in heaven are not given to marriage, meaning that obedient angels in heaven don't marry each other, but he never said anything about disobedient angels. We know that disobedient angels do a lot of things that other angels don't do. That's why they're called disobedient angels. So, And he also says in heaven, this isn't on heaven. And at the same time, Does that mean that angels never ever have had marriage and never will have marriage? Or is it just that's what's true at the time that we go to heaven or the time that Jesus is talking? We don't know. Jesus didn't say for all time in the past and all time in the future. He just says, when you get to heaven, you'll be like the angels in this sense. What time period of history is that? I don't know. Be careful of building complete theologies on really quippy little statements. And then it may be true. It may be that angels never given a marriage ever at any time, but I don't know. Okay, like I could write a paragraph on there with all the things that I know about angels, and that probably wouldn't even be inaccurate. There's so much that we don't know about the spiritual realm, and we've never been there, so how can we say that can't happen? So they come along and they think this is weird, this is mythological, so they try to come with a more rooted in view. And that view is this. 
it must be the godly line of Seth. Sons of God. Well, son of God is used as adoptive language of Israel when God adopts them in the book of Exodus. So that must mean that they're godly and that then the men, we all know men are not godly, so that they're marrying. Well, once again, here's some problems with that. One, not everybody in Seth's line is godly because God already made that point, and that's the point I already kind of made. Two, just because God is adopting you and calling you a son of God doesn't mean you're godly because when we get to Israel's history, they ain't godly, okay? That's what he hoped they would be, not what he was declaring them to actually be. And so, like, when he declares us to be righteous, that's not what we are. That's what we will become. And so you can't make that mistake. And once again, we come to the point like, but why only the men in this genealogy and only the women in this genealogy? And here's the other big problem. If you're a godly man and you decide to become one flesh with a woman that is only thinking only evil all the time, then I'm going to seriously question your godliness. Now you're like, well, I know people who've married non-Christians. Yeah, but they weren't so evil that they were thinking only evil all the time. I mean, yes, they weren't Christians, and that probably wasn't healthy, but there's a big difference between not being Christian and thinking only evil all the time. And it's very unlikely that they're marrying in that kind of a sense and still can be called godly. And does this really warrant wiping out all of humanity? Have lots of ungodly people married godly people throughout all of history, and yet God has never wiped out humanity? This sin is so bad that God decides to wipe out all of humanity, and he will never do that again until the second coming of Christ. So that view kind of got rejected. And Augustine came along, and around the 10,000, or um, sorry, 1,000, and 10 hundreds, and he developed the theme that they're kings, because kings would often call themselves the sons of God. Now, you're like, this is a little bit more accurate. This is a little bit more likely. Okay? Well, the reason they called themselves sons of God is because they were claiming to be divine beings, which takes you back to the idea, why would they call themselves sons of God when they're trying to claim that they're divine? Because angels are always called sons of God. So they're actually calling themselves angels and believe that they were angels and believe that they were gods. That's why they called themselves the sons of God. But at the same time, they didn't really call themselves the sons of God. They called themselves a son of God. Even when Augustine came along, he said, I am the son of God, the prince of um, peace, and the king of kings and the lord of lords. Okay? These are terms that they use themselves because they were claiming divinity which takes you back to why did they use that term to claim divinity? They think that this might be kings having polygamous relationships. There's a problem with that. Polygamy has continued on. In fact, Abraham's going to be a polygamist, and God is going to declare him righteous, not wipe him off the face of the earth. Two, it doesn't say polygamy. It just says they're getting married. And three, this doesn't really warrant wiping out humanity, but at the same time is, are there kings? The first king that is ever going to be mentioned is Genesis 14. We don't even have nations yet. They don't come about until chapter 10. So you, why are we talking about kings when kings don't even come into the picture until several chapters from now? Well, some people have said, 
that this might be rape, that the king is raping women that he wants because he's the king and he can do that. Did that happen in the medieval period? Yes. But there's no real instances that we know of in the ancient world. Not that it didn't happen, it's just not highly recorded. But once again, this doesn't say that they're raping. It says they're taking them as wives. Mutual. So there's problems with the other views. So those views started becoming very prominent. And then around the 1920s, when we started discovering other writings from other cultures, that's when pretty much every scholar has returned back to the sons of God view. I'd be willing to bet that all your pastors, if you cornered them and said, I won't tell anybody, they'd probably tell you this is the view that they take. Okay? So, once again, can I say this absolutely? No. I'm just saying I think the weight of the evidence strongly points toward this. But here's the point. No matter what view you take, it does not change the fact that humanity is trying to gain power by doing this. That humanity is trying to gain power by doing this. And so God looks at this and says, this is not right. I'm going to kill them all in 120 years. And then he turns to man and says, this is why they're able to do something like this, because they only think evil all the time, and the way that I'm going to wipe them out is with a flood. Now remember, water can mean two things. The raging water is chaos and judgment. But water can also be life and cleansing and baptism. In the flood, it's both. He's going to let the waters rage and bring chaos and judgment. But those waters are also going to cleanse the seed of man and the seed of the land. Now the Nephilim, the implication is that they had children and that these children are men of renown, heroes. They're able to do things that we can't explain. What does Nephilim mean? We have no idea. When you get to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they translate that word into the Greek word giantess. Now that makes us think that it's giants because it sounds like giants, but that's just coincidence. Just like if I say, hey, I just gave birth to a son. It sounds like the big ball of fire, son, but that's not what I had. Okay? So the, the, the phonetics is similar, but that doesn't mean the definition is the same. So giantus actually means an unholy union. And that word giantus is used of the titans. And if you don't know anything about Greek mythology, titans were jacked up unholy gods. One of the head of the gods was called Kronos, who ate his own children and gave birth eventually to Zeus. And that even the evil jacked up gods were so scared and thought the Titans were so evil that they had to lock the Titans up in an abyss with chains. And then they had these children that were half God and half human, and they were able to do supernatural things. This is where we get the stories of Hercules and Perseus. Could it be that these stories are based on something that really did happen and got blown out of proportion? I don't know. Mighty heroes of old. It says that they were on the earth at this time and afterwards. I have no idea what that means. It sounds like they're on the earth afterwards. 
But it sounds like if God is wiping out the earth to get rid of these people, then he didn't really do that good of a job. Or could it be that they came back again in some other kind of a way? If they did, then why doesn't God tell us? I don't know. The only time that they're ever mentioned again in the Bible is in the book of Numbers when they go to spy out the land, the Jews, and they come back and the ten spies say, we can't take that line. land, there's Nephilim there. And people are like, look, it must not be angels and humans because they're after the flood. Well, I also would not take the word of a bunch of people who've also said life was better in Egypt and God is just here to kill us and we had all this wealth in Egypt and all we can't take the land and all God doesn't love us and all. I wouldn't necessarily take their advice on what is truth. So remember, just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's true. Sometimes God is just quoting people. That doesn't make them accurate. I mean, it means that they did say that truth, but what they're saying is not truth. And so that's important to understand. Now, does this mean that if a demon sleeps with a human, they can actually give birth to kids? I don't know. I don't think so. That's the part of me is like, okay, I think that's too weird. But at the same time, is it possible that the humans were, if you're thinking only evil all the time and you're willing to sleep with a demon, chances are you're not a faithful spouse or you've slept with other people before that. So it could be that they got impregnated by a man and then a demon came along and deceived them into thinking that their kid is divine and that's what they think. And so God is not necessarily cleansing half God, half humans. He's cleansing the idea of half God, half humans. Could it be that it is biological possible and we don't know that? I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know. <laughs> this is a strange time period. And all I can say is this is how these words are used in other places of the Bible. This is how this event is talked about in other places of the Bible. And that's the best that I can do. But all it comes down to is man is trying to gain control by doing this. And that's what you can't miss. I think it's important to go through all these views but don't start debating it to the point that you miss the true point. And once again, I've been studying this for a long time, and I've read a stack of books like this. And this is the view I've come to. I don't expect you to agree with me or take this view after like 10 minutes of talking. And nor am I the absolute authority on it, and nor was I there pre-flood to tell you what really happened. Okay. <laughs> This is the conclusion that I and many scholars and most Christians and Jews throughout history have taken. But there's a lot of things that most Christians throughout history have believed in and been wrong. So I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just saying I'm convinced that this is the most likely answer. But that does not mean I'm right. But the one thing I do believe that I write on is no matter what, God is trying to make the point that humanity is trying to be in control of their own life in some way. That kings are dominating women for power. And this is why I really can't take the Seth line thing, because I don't know how a godly man would gain power by marrying an evil woman. Um, but I wouldn't have a problem with the king view, because they do use that title. So that's the end of the second Toledot. You're like, well, wait a minute, that's right in the middle of the Noah story. No, it isn't. We think it is, because that's the way we're used to reading the Bible. But this isn't how we read the Bible. This is how God wrote the Bible. And when you get to verse 9, it says, this is the Toledot of Noah, meaning next chapter. 
So technically, if you want a chapter Genesis, there's only 10 chapters. And so the next chapter begins in verse 9. Why? Because God tells you to, it does. So now we begin the account. Now, then, okay, wait a minute. So Genesis 6 doesn't go with Genesis 6. <laughs> yes, remember, chapters don't mean anything. They weren't there in the original. And it does seem more natural to us that this whole flood and all that kind of stuff would lead into the flood. Like, wouldn't it be talking about the flood also be about the flood? Well, remember, many ideas are carried from episode to episode to episode in a lot of shows that you watch. Or if you're the kind of person that still reads books, chapter to chapter to chapter, which I highly recommend. So you guys are probably more likely. My students are like, isn't there a movie on that? So um, the reality is this. It fits better with the genealogy because the point is that everyone is dying. The point is the curse. The point is the grace of God that they're being fruitful and multiply. But notice the genealogy is he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. But Noah will bring comfort. Well, why does humanity need comfort? Because sons of God are sleeping with humans. And everybody's thinking only evil all the time to the point that God is going to wipe everybody out. That's why Noah's going to bring comfort because the comfort is, despite the fact that everybody's dying, despite the fact that there is no life that seems like, despite the fact that humanity is so evil, despite the fact they're all going to die in a cosmic flood, Noah will bring comfort to his people. And so Genesis 6, 1 through 8, explains why Noah's bring comfort to his people. Then, the next Toledot starts telling us about Noah and what he did. Does that make sense? Yes. 